Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sarah Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sarah Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sarah Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Dr. Karen Williams. Karen is a consultant psychiatrist who treats patients who have suffered complex trauma and other kinds of trauma. The deficit of services targeted for this population has led her to founding the organization Doctors Against Violence Towards Women. The primary aim of this group is to advocate for increased public and professional awareness of trauma-informed care. So I am super excited to welcome Dr. Karen Williams back to the show. Welcome, Karen. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Good to see you again. Well, yeah, it's fabulous to have you back. You're always one of my most popular guests. So you are back due to public demand, Karen. So thanks for coming back. <laughs> So one of the things that I wanted to dive into with you today is how the police respond and handle domestic abuse, because right now in the UK, there is a lot of headline news about Sarah Everard, who was murdered by a police officer. And this is such a brutal, shocking, horrific story. And, you know, thoughts go out to her family who have suffered immensely and faced him in court yesterday actually here in the UK where he's gone away and will die in prison so he's away for life and I think whilst obviously the sentence it gives some relief to the family the fact that this is happening the fact that this is shining a light on lots of other issues with the police over here and I know there are issues with the police around the world with domestic abuse, and you are very involved in this. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing over in Australia too? I mean, what we see in Australia is, you know, exactly what you've talked about, where we've got broad-based problems within the police force. I think people have this idea that the police force is going to be, they're, they're full of good people there to uphold the law. Forgetting the fact that, you know, our baseline rates of abusers are high anyway, and that people who choose positions where they are in power over others are going to be actually at a higher rate of being abusers themselves. So you, we have to recognise that our police force, which is predominantly male, does have abusers within the ranks. That That's just a fact and the research backs that up as well. You've probably heard of, you know, the, the estimated data around 40%, but, you know, I'd say that the rates are higher than, than we've been able to work out because there's so much officer-involved in, domestic violence that is not reported and not recorded and the wives and partners of police officers in Australia, similar to what's happening over there, they find it particularly difficult because already we've got a police force or an entire ju judicial system that doesn't recognise domestic violence a lot of the time and doesn't respond to domestic violence a lot of the time. So, um, but they're in, a, in an even 
bigger disadvantage where they're actually going to their partner's colleagues. And in Australia, I'm not sure if it's the same over there, but in Australia, it's the person's own, their own home, their own station that they to go to. So I'm, I'm aware of a number of women who have to report their partners to the very workplace that their partner is going to and that it is their his peers that actually do the investigation it is his peers that will decide how far to take that investigation and we all know that abusive men are not walking around with big signs on their head that advertise them as abusers at all they look very normal. They are often very charming. They hold positions of respect within the community and police officers do hold that position of respect. So their colleagues will say, you know, I know this guy really well. There's no way he's doing those things. And often he has already portrayed her as being a little crazy. Um, you, you will find that these cops will have told their, their peers, you know, oh, I've got this, you know, crazy wife. And so he will have painted her already as being either a little bit, you know, mentally unstable or maybe an alcoholic or, and that he's, you know, this really caring guy that looks after her and he's often her saviour. And so when she tries to report violence or in, you know, any kind of stalking behaviour or harassment, that kind of thing, the colleagues of, of the perpetrator will dismiss it, outright dismiss it, or they fail to actually record it or report it. And even if they do record it, the investigation is entirely inadequate. And so we've also had some horrible cases in our media um, being talked about recently, and one of them was... Um, a lady who had 17 charges between, I think it was five-year period, and it was neighbours who had witnessed her being hit. They had witnessed her being dragged, and she the, these 17 reports, not one of them were investigated. And she herself had made a report, and she herself had asked for a apprehended violence order, and she was. Um, found unconscious, naked, bruised, and the police that attended were told by the perpetrator, or well, I'm assuming the perpetrator, that uh, she had overdosed and was drunk. And he had painted her as a drunk and a, and a drug user for the years prior to that. So there was no crime scene set up. There was no investigation. She, her body was taken to the hospital and, you know, I think, I think she died a couple of days later. But the autopsy revealed she didn't have alcohol on board at all. She wasn't intoxicated at all and that she had, in fact, died of a brain bleed. And there, there was hematomas in her brain, two of them, and there was bruises all over her body. And it's been two years now and this guy's still working. And there has been no investigation into, into what happened to her, even though we've got a woman's death. She's dead now, you know. She, she's a mother and there's a, a child without their mother and that child is living with him and he's currently working in the police force and there's been no investigation about that at all. 
And this is what comes with having a system that is completely blinded to coercive control. Because if we did understand what coercive control was, if the police force were aware of the fact that that there are perpetrators amongst us and that they look exactly like anybody else, that, that they don't look like violent maniacs, they just look like ordinary guys. And these women that it should be a red flag to anyone when a man is saying, oh, she's she's crazy, she's drunk, she's a drug user. That should be a sign that they need to be looking further into this because healthy partners don't usually talk about their, their wives this way. And the other really terrible thing about this was, which speaks to how systemic the this stigma is around women, is that she had been speaking to a mental health worker for a year and reporting her relationship with clear signs of coercive control to a mental health professional. And at no stage did he even document her as having a domestic violence relationship. He documented that she would sleep on the street sometimes rather than go home. So he did notice that. He said in the inquiry into her death, so that this is not the same as an investigation or criminal investigation, this is just an inquiry into her death that the family demanded happen. But he said that the reason he didn't report domestic violence to anyone was because he felt sorry for the police officer. He said he felt sad that, you know, it's difficult living with someone who's an alcoholic. So he had bought right into the the idea that, you know, she was the problem. And he's there, you know, now feeling sorry for the perpetrator. I mean, I'm lost for words. I mean, it is horrific about how many times, 17 times she's reported this. So she's flagged it up. She, you know, the poor woman has gone through so much. And then the people that are supposed to be there to protect her are letting her down time and time again. Are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce? Are you feeling devastated, heartbroken, sad and anxious? If so, please know that you are not alone and there is help available. Sarah Davison, best known as The Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. I heard somebody interviewed on the radio the other day about the police and they were saying that obviously reporting somebody in your station or someone that you work closely with puts you at risk as a police officer. Because when you press, for example, your emergency button for, you know, you need help. You know, they're worried that people won't come to help them if they've been known to speak out about another police officer or voice concerns. So 
I guess there's some really serious, deep-seated issues there. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that obviously you want your team to be there for you if you need them. But if that's a conflict of interest about doing the job that you're paid to do and serving the public, that really is a serious issue that really needs investigation and, and some sort of help. I mean, this poor woman. And then but the fact that... whistleblowing, isn't it? This is your... A complete conflict of interest. You can't have colleagues and friends because that's what happens when you work in a workplace. Some of you are going to end up friends. You know, you're going to do things outside of the workplace. You're going to go for drinks afterwards. You, you, you establish close relationships in workplaces like this. So it's naive to think that it's appropriate that you get a colleague to investigate each other you you know that just shouldn't ever happen but that's how it is that's how it is in Australia it is their immediate colleagues will investigate them and, and so I think one of the challenges is that the this personality type that we're talking about who are capable of such hideous things you know they are quite intimidating and to speak out about somebody like that also puts you in a dangerous position potentially you know about how they were going to now react to you and are they now going to make your life a living hell so I guess there's those fears of the personal repercussions as well as the professional repercussions right yeah I mean in a typical coercive control relationship though somebody like him is going to be manipulating everybody in his environment so it's not that um even that they would be worried it would be that part of his whole persona the public persona would be to make everyone around him think that he's wonderful because if the work colleagues all say he's fantastic then you know if there's ever a work you know a work do if there's any social setting where his colleagues are there they will all be you know speaking very highly or your husband's so wonderful he's a really great guy, you're so lucky to have married this guy, you know, and the community think he's fantastic and she's there going, there's something wrong with me, you know, that I'm the only one that can't get along with this amazing person. So he recruits the community to continue the whole setup of her to make her feel more and more crazy. And so it isn't even that they are covering up a lot of the time. They will genuinely believe that this guy is a good guy and because they're not seeing it. You know, he's not stupid enough to do the, the abusive acts in front of them. He knows the laws and part of being a coercive controller is evading the laws and doing things in a way where you don't get caught and you don't leave any trail. And they're expert at it because they know what the laws are. They know exactly what level of evidence would be required. And they know that they can defeat that because the level of evidence, at least in Australia, and I'm fairly certain over there as well, is next to impossible to to meet. You can have video evidence of people getting assaulted and it not stand up in court because you're not allowed to, you know, admit um, that evidence in because there wasn't permission granted or she provoked him in some way. You know, that, that argument is still used. Yeah. Uh, you talk a lot there about coercive control. So for my listeners who aren't really sure what coercive control is, how would you describe it, Karen? It is really sad. I think it's one of the reasons why there is so much systemic biases going on because the concept of coercive control seems so new. It seems like, you know, it's only the name calling or it's only the emotional side of 
a domestic violence relationship. Now, I think it's really important to recognise that all domestic violence relationships, all of them come under a banner of coercive control. And whilst a person is in a relationship with someone who is a controller, they will be using a range of tactics to hurt this person, to control this person. And sometimes the tactic used in coercive control is the violence. But that's only some of the time. They use a number of tactics, which might be threatening her with violence, but it might be threatening her with her children. You know, I will kill the children. I will kill you. I will kill your family or I will hurt your family or I will post naked photos of you or I will release this video of you. Um, I will damage your career. I will leave you homeless. So there's a whole range of techniques that they are using, but we really zero in on the physical violence. We think that's the only thing that matters. That tactic that he uses to make her fear for her physical safety is the only thing that she, you know, that matters in these relationships. So we've got this idea that that's what we need to look at. We look at that one tactic, has she got bruises, has she got um, you know, medical history of being physically injured. And we completely disregard the entire psychological process that's going on as an overall banner. The processes that start with grooming her right from the beginning, you know, where he is deliberately using her vulnerabilities to get her in. So these guys are very clever in they're not empathic but they have an intelligence about emotions and they they're they're aware of them and they're aware of her vulnerabilities and so what they will do is they will they will appeal to those in the beginning and they'll groom her at the beginning and if they you know if they see that she's got low self-esteem they will use that to you know shower her with compliments make her feel wonderful and having low low self-esteem she she'll respond positively to that but whatever it is that he sees that she wants that he will give her all of that at the beginning in the grooming stages but it's all like a manipulation when he brings her in and and sets a scene of this is this wonderful person that I am I am this fantastic loving giving person and he this for her is what this is his baseline this is what he is like and it sets her up to believe this is a good person and in that time when he's lavishing praise on her he's setting it some rules about as well at the same time so he'll be saying you know god I love how you know you are so much different from your friends they're all going out and you know, they're superficial and shallow. Look at all the makeup they're wearing and you're different from that, you know. You're a really special person. So he's sort of saying to her, I don't want you doing that. I don't want you going out. I don't want you wearing those sort of things. And she's thinking, oh, he really sees me for who I am. So he, she can be quite impressed by that. And, you know, he'll say, you know, I love how you've got such a lovely heart and you're so generous which means, you know, you've got to keep giving to me, give, give to me as much as you can sort of thing. And you're so different from my crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a, that's a very, very common thing for them to say. 
my ex was crazy and you're just you're so calm and so nice and what he's saying to her then is you know don't argue with me don't fight with me I I like that you're calm and nice and she's going to want to keep that going she wants to be different from the crazy ex-girlfriend she doesn't think she's crazy and she sort of ends up sort of being molded into exactly what he wants her to be but without her necessarily recognizing it because we don't talk about coercive control enough we don't talk about that phase of love bombing in fact we celebrate men that giving these overt displays of affection very quickly you know in the movies we say well you know like look how romantic that is you know he met me once and he's bringing flowers to my office and he's turning up at lunchtime and he's that he knows I go for walks on the beach and he turns up there you know we celebrate that sort of actually dangerous behavior I think Um, I think it's really important what you're saying is great advice and quite often it's those disguised as a compliment but it really isn't it's a manipulation tool and I think you know a lot of my listeners listen to this might be having some light bulb moments right now of oh yeah they did used to say that but I used to take that as a positive because it was kind of a compliment but actually now I can see there was a darker intent behind it and that has shaped that relationship that's it for today's episode do join me for part two of Dr Karen Williams interview in my next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sara's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness. Heartbreak to Happiness.